Uh, and as you're seated, would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, um, uh, we are always needful of you, uh, maybe more, never more needful than when the word is preached. Um, uh, so, Lord, would you take this word and make it not simply, you know, information transfer, but would you, as only you can by your Holy Spirit, place it deeply in our hearts, uh, Lord, that Christ would be formed in us, that he would loom large in our lives. Lord, either if that comes maybe, you know, for the thousandth time or maybe for the first time, uh, Lord, would you get the glory and would, would what we receive from you here not benefit merely us, although we do ask for that because we're desperate, um, but we pray that uh, your life would be known in our lives, uh, that this congregation would be built up in love for one another, and that this city would know the love of Christ from this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, uh, the Puritan, Thomas Brooks, uh, used to tell a story about Bonaventure. Uh, Bonaventure is a 13th century theologian, and the story uh, goes like this, that the devil was attacking Bonaventure. Uh, he was accusing him of, of being kind of a reprobate, uh, un, someone unworthy, you know, because of his life, unworthy to call himself a Christian. And, and, he, and, he, and he continued the attack by telling Bonaventure, you know, you might as well indulge in all the fleshly pleasures that this life has on offer because you will certainly not enjoy them in the life to come. And Bonaventure's answer to the devil was this, no. Not so, Satan, for if I even, for if I cannot enjoy God after this life, let me enjoy him as much as I can in this life. Now, we're moving forward in Mark, and, and each week, you know, I kind of can't get past the first verse. Um, the first thing said about Jesus is that he is the Christ. He's the Son of God. It's a verse I, I suspect that maybe inform Bonaventure's answer to the devil, um, that Jesus is Lord of all. He, he's Lord of the heavens and the earth, not just of the life to come, but he's Lord in this life as well. And, and we've seen that play out uh, pretty potently in the passage just before this, the one we looked at last week, where Jesus came to this little town of Capernaum and read the scriptures and preached from them in the synagogue so that everyone who heard him was struck with something like awe. You know, they were, they, they were awestruck because they realized that this was one who taught with authority. They realized that, in other words, that in Jesus they had more than a great preacher. They understood they were in a great presence. They were hearing not merely a supreme interpreter of the Scripture, but in fact the author of the Scriptures. And last week, you know, we spent time kind of mulling that over, looking at the, the kingly authority of Jesus. And this week, we're pivoting to look at the kingly advance of Jesus, uh, what we might call the mission of Jesus, with a, with a focus on the potency of that mission, the peril of that mission, and finally, the priority of that mission. And we're picking up with Jesus going to Simon's house, uh, Simon and Andrew's house. This is Simon Peter. And, you know, apparently this house is very close by. It's possible it could have been even next door. And, and upon entering the house, they find out very quickly that Peter's mother-in-law uh, is sick with a fever. Now, 
The fever was significant enough to have her laid up, uh, but it's helpful to know that people uh, then did not think of a fever, you know, as the symptom of something else or as a sickness all in its own right, but as something that had some level of spiritual significance to it. Fevers mentioned in the Bible in Deuteronomy and Leviticus as one of several possible divine punishments for breaking God's covenant. So, you know, it was thought to be a condition that could only be cured by God's divine intervention. One rabbi commented on those passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and said, you know, the healing of a fever is greater even than the extinguishing of the flames in the oven that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into in Babylon because, you know, you can, a fire kindled by man can be put out by man, but a fire kindled by God could only be put out by God. Now, that's a lot, but all that is to say is that, you know, they're dealing with in this moment um, something that I think, you know, all of us deal with when, when we or someone close to us is hit with a severe illness. And that's that there's more going on than just an ailment. There's angst all around it. So Jesus goes to to Peter's mother-in-law. He takes her by the hand. He lifts her up. And and the the text says that the fever left her. A a more literal translation would be something like the fever forsook her. Uh, It could have nothing to do with her anymore. Now, it's important to pay attention not only to the fact, uh, the reality of, of that healing, but also the results of that healing. Uh, we, f- we find out that, that Peter's mother-in-law, uh, after she got up and after the fever left her, she immediately began to serve them. And, you know, the first look at that is sort of like, oh my gosh, here's this poor woman. She's just been laid up with a fever, and the instant she's back on her feet, you know, she's right back to waiting on the men hand and foot. And, and I've even come across kind of more contemporary uh, commentaries that say, you know, here you go with the sexist patriarchal culture. But, but I think we need to be very careful not to impose kind of, you know, our cultural prejudices on the text, because what we're seeing here, we've actually already seen, you know, a couple of times in this gospel, and it's not oppression. For example, in verse 13, right after Jesus's trial in the desert, right after that temptation, The angels do exactly what Peter's mother-in-law is doing here. They they serve him. Serving Jesus, in other words, is not humiliation. It's it's discipleship. It's worship. You know, and if if you want to look through it through the lens of gender, and I think I can encourage you in that direction, you'll actually see that the women outdo the men in this all throughout the gospel. Um, So much so that by the end of the gospel, it was the faithful women who had stuck with Jesus to the very end. You know, they're described not merely as followers there, not merely as disciples of Jesus who went to him all the way to the end, but almost as something better. At the very end of the gospel in, in chapter 15, verse 41, they're described as servants, as those who served him. You see, the healing touch of Jesus in your life doesn't promote you to boss, right? provides you freedom to serve. It takes you to that place of discipleship, of worship. And look, you know, if you struggle with that idea, I just want to say you're in good company. The disciples struggled with it too. 
Um, a little later in the gospel, they're going to argue about this very thing pretty intensely, you know, about who's the greatest among us, who's going to sit to Jesus' right and to his left. And, and that argument actually prompts a pretty strong rebuke from Jesus that says, look, you've got greatness all wrong. Greatness in the kingdom are not those who lord over others, but instead those who are servants. And again, you know, this idea was deeply challenging for the disciples then, and I want to say it's deeply challenging for disciples now. It's challenging for me. It wasn't long ago, I was going into Starbucks at the DeVargas Center over here, and, um, you know, and I, my hand hits the handle, and I'm opening the door, and I hear someone from behind me in the parking lot yelling at me, you know, uh, to please hold the door. And of course, you know, I suspect just before I even turned around that this was someone who, you know, was encumbered in some way, was carrying something and with hands full, needed a little help getting through the door. And then I turn around and, and it was just this guy who, you know, is at least 10 years younger than me, trotting across the parking lot, nothing in his hands, um, you know, while I'm holding the door for him so that he can get in line in front of me at Starbucks. And, you know, to be honest, I'm kind of standing there going, what the heck? <laughs> I did not like being a servant to that guy. Uh, I just don't like it. I don't want to hold the door unless you deserve it. I dang sure don't want to hold the door for someone to get their coffee 45 seconds before I get my coffee. <laughs> but service lies at the heart of following Jesus. It's at the heart. To be a Jesus follower is to be a servant. It is to take the low place. Jesus put it pretty plainly. He, he, he said, a servant is not above his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And when you really kind of unpack the logic there, it means that trying to be something other than Jesus' servant or something other than a message, messenger you know, for his gospel is, in effect, to try to stage a little coup. You know, setting my agenda ahead of following his will, you know, maybe substituting my message as supreme to his. So the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, you know, is, a, is really a beautiful picture that being cured by Jesus creates service, creates a calling, opens it up. Now, the next thing you know is it's sundown, and, and in the context, sundown means the end of the Sabbath, and it's almost like the second the Sabbath is over, everybody's free to make their way over to the house. Uh, Mark says the whole city was there pounding on the door to be healed. Um, and, and Jesus uh, serves the people. Uh, he heals many who are sick with various diseases. He's casting out demons. This goes late into the night, and and. Uh, as he's doing that, he not only commands the unclean spirits to come out, but he, he commands them to be silent. And, and the interesting thing is, is that for a little while, at least, Jesus goes silent. Uh, we're told that he slips away. He, he, he slips away long before daylight. He gets to a, a solitary place or a desolate place where he prayed. Um, now, this is the third time the solitary place has been mentioned in just the few verses here in Mark, um, the desolate place. Uh, John the Baptist is called a voice, um, is identified as the voice calling in the desolate place. Uh, the Spirit drove Jesus into that desolate place where he was tempted by Satan, and now he's back there again. Uh, 
not to be tested, but to, to pray, to be refreshed. And it's a pattern that we'll see continue in this gospel, but it's really critical that we understand this. It's, it's not that Jesus is getting away, you know, kind of like we do, like it's so stressful, I can't deal with all the people, I got to get away. Uh, Jesus is not getting away from something, he's getting to something. Um, so, you know, after what, have, what must have been actually a, a, an exhausting day, he goes toward the refreshment deeper than even a good night's sleep has on offer in being with his father. Uh, but it doesn't last long. His disciples uh, find him. The language here is quite intense, actually. Uh, it, it's, it wouldn't be going too far to say they've hunted him down. And, uh, you know, there is a, uh, there's kind of a, a, a desperate, frantic quality to looking for Jesus here. And, and you see that when they finally find him and they blurt out, everyone's looking for you. They are treating him like a little kid who's wandered off in the mall. You know, every time I turn around, you're gone. It's important to see that this is a rebuke. It's not simply that they were worried about Jesus' safety. He's a grown man. This, this is full of frustration. Uh, these are people who feel that Jesus has ruined a good thing by doing what he wanted to do. Uh, you know, like who wanders off when ministry success is happening? When the crowds are coming, when the healings are happening, when deliverances are taking place, uh, when you're becoming the hot thing and then you just take off. It is like his priorities are all out of whack and the disciples are ticked off about it. And let's be honest, you know, when you read this, it, you can relate to the frustration, right? Like imagine, imagine here at, at Christ Church, there's certainly lots of good things going on, but, you know, imagine we have to add a third service because there's too many people. You know, and on Sunday mornings before, you know, anyone gets here to unlock the door, there's a line of people just can't, can't wait to get in here. You know, and the budgets grow, and we're making more peanut butter and jellies than ever, and... You know, and it's all just ministry success. That gives you a flavor of what was going on there in Capernaum when Jesus slipped away to a solitary place. You know, can you kind of feel the frustration? So the disciples go to him, and they're disappointed, and they're angry, and they've got expectations, and they track him down, and they say, everyone's looking for you. And again, it's not just a declaration. It's a demand. It's a rebuke. They are putting a condition on Jesus. They're, they're you know, saying, you are not operating in the way a good Messiah should operate. Let's get back to the crowds, back to the healings, back to the exorcisms, back to catalytic ministry. And with that, with all that, you know, we need to see that, in fact, Jesus wasn't tempted in the desolate place once. He's being tempted again here. Only this time, the temptation isn't coming from the devil, it's coming from the disciples. You know, um, the devil said, if, if, if you're really the Son of God, prove it. Uh, turn the stone into bread. If you're really the Son of God, climb up on that pinnacle of the temple and prove it by jumping off. And here are the disciples saying, if you're really the Son of God, prove it by doing what everyone expects you to do. And with all, you know, they may not know it, but with all that emotion, with uh, this posture they have toward Jesus, they are presenting to him a temptation. A temptation to take up another priority. 
a, a priority that would cause him to depart from his mission. And we know that because of Jesus' answer in verse 38, where he says, he takes it in, he says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. And then he states the priority, for that is why I came out. That. Preaching there also. Jesus' priority is the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. The good news of his coming, not just in one place, but in every place. That's the overarching aim and the central purpose. And that, that doesn't mean that lots of other good things aren't going on. They are. Jesus will continue to heal the sick and deliver people from unclean spirits. But when he says, here's why I came, he's saying, this is the main thing. This is my main purpose. You know, and, and one of the tricky things about the main things and good things happening alongside, side by side is sometimes the good things can deter you from the main thing, from the great thing of proclaiming the good news everywhere. And look, this is, this is churches wrestle with this all the time. I want to say daily. I mean, we've got a vision statement appropriately called the main thing. And in that vision statement, it expresses the priority that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be at the center of our lives and that it would be shared with our community. That's our main thing. We do lots of other things um, that aren't specifically that, but we're determined that everything be connected to that and grow from that. And we're determined, especially, that nothing ever compete with that. And if it does compete with that, it loses. And it's really critical to understand that because it's nearly always the case that when churches decline, when churches die, when churches depart from what a church is supposed to be, it is not because they wake up one morning and they go, you know what, everybody, let's renounce the gospel together. It's almost always because the good things begin to displace or even replace the main thing. Almost always. And what I think that means is that the gospel is a commodity that is easily lost in the life of the church, very often with the best of intentions, and that it requires of us some tenacity as a community to keep it together, to keep it at the center, because the good things will compete. Someone will say, you know what, I remember when I was in Boston, someone said, we need to become the adoption church. I was actually adopted. I love adoption. Um, adoption's a great thing. I love it when churches take up the cause of adoption. I don't want to be the adoption church. We need to be the gospel church within which adoptions take their place, right? So the gospel's a commodity easily lost in the life of the church, with, often with the best of intentions. And I want to notice, you know, the damage this does to the disciples. Um, Mark says, you know, with some irony that they follow Jesus into this desolate place. They're, they're kind of, they're following, they're, they're, being disciples, but they don't come to him as disciples. They come as demanders. Uh, not Jesus followers, but, but Jesus users. And in fact, by, by verse 36, Mark, you know, in, in brilliant prose, drops the disciple moniker altogether and refers to them simply as Simon and his companions. It's like, I'm not going to call them disciples right now. And what a contrast, right, to Peter's mother-in-law, whose healing opened up, created the calling to serve. You know, whereas with the disciples, the healings that they witnessed motivate them to make demands. 
So Jesus' mission priority comes with its perils. Uh, it comes with its dangers. And, you know, uh, with even the people closest to him urging him to get on board with their plans to do other things. You know, to make that the priority. And we do that in church. Get on board with, with some social good. Provide, you know, more direct moral direction. Fix the politics. Transform the culture. All of that. Um, and all of that has its place, but when it becomes the priority, it actually threatens the, central, the centrality of the gospel mission. So that we see here, you know, threats not only coming from the outside, but from the inside. So Jesus is determined to continue in his mission, and he does, and as he does, he continues to do miracles, but he doesn't want people to lose sight as to why he does miracles. People will be wowed by miracles. Um, he's cautious about this, but he wants to see miracles as something like a sacrament, like a sign. Miracles that the significance of them is not what they are in themselves, but what they point to, right? I mean, if you're driving on I-25 and you see a sign that says Albuquerque, you don't pull off the road and go, well, where is it, right? It's a head. It's a sign. Miracles are signs. They point to Jesus. They point to the gospel. So he has a mission priority, and it comes with great mercy. I don't want to miss this. Uh, mercy toward us. He loves his disciples. He knows our propensity to think that nobody knows better what I need than me. Nobody knows better what I need than me. You know, and, and while I'd say we're pretty excellent at knowing what we want, we're pretty terrible at knowing what we need. So as desirous as physical healing is, and look, we regularly pray for physical healing in this church, and we always will. That is absolutely appropriate. Uh, we always do it with a view toward the need for every, everyone's need for a deeper healing. You know, that, that even if we're healed physically and, and get a few more years, you know, what's critical is that we get life with Jesus forever, right? That's the deeper healing. You know, as thrilling as a demonic deliverance may be, we all need a deeper deliverance from, 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 life, from death to life. And Jesus is determined that we get what we need. And he's gracious to throw a lot of other stuff in there as well. It's always struck me that the generation in the Bible that witnessed and experienced the most dazzling displays of God's power, the outpouring of plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the trembling of the mountains, the voice of God himself, coming from that mountain, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. That was the generation that famously went down in history as the most faithless, the most rebellious. Um, you know, Jesus puts it pretty forcefully in Matthew 12 and saying, an evil and adulterous generation seeks signs, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. That's the sign that matters, coming up from the depths into life. I think he's saying there, part of what he's saying is that it is in our fallenness that the Lord should always prove himself to us. Prove it. And Jesus says, come on, let's get out of here. I, let's get out of here so that I can preach there also. Because this is why I came out, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So he does that. And having stated that priority, we actually see it play out in one more story. In verse 40, when a leper comes to him, a leper uh, coming, imploring him, kneeling before him, uh, saying to Jesus, if you will, would, would you make me clean? 
And, it, and it's, it's interesting what he asked for. He doesn't simply say, Jesus, cure me. He says, Jesus, cleanse me. Um, that language is important because he's anchored in the law of God. That's uh, Leviticus 13 and 14 go into great detail about what happens to a person should you be diagnosed with leprosy. Um, just to kind of get our heads around this, imagine you were a Jew living at this time, and let's say you're married and you've got a bunch of kids and you own a shop, and one morning you wake up and you're getting dressed and your wife goes, I see a little discoloration on you. Can I look, look at that? And that would strike fear into the heart. Uh, because according to God's law, you would have to go to the priest and show him that discoloration. And if the determination was made that it was leprosy, the physical realities of the disease might be the least of your worries. Because you're not merely unhealthy, you're unclean. And, and because you are unclean, the effect on that, of that on your life would be totally devastating. You would have to leave your family. You couldn't go to the temple. You'd be completely disconnected from the community. You would be outside the gates of the city. This shopkeeper would have to leave everything and be doomed to a solitary life, cut off. And, and you know, certainly while fear of spreading disease was a concern, the bigger concern in this culture was the spreading of uncleanness of religious impurity, you weren't just struck with uncleanness, you were now a source of it. There were laws having to do with, you know, sitting in a chair that a leper may have sat in last week. Because the understanding is, is that uncleanness is not only in you, it flows from you. You weren't allowed to be within, you know, 100 yards of another person, and everywhere you went, you were, it was, it was, it was incumbent upon you that if anyone got within range of you, you had to yell, speaking of yourself, unclean. Can you imagine anything more dehumanizing, more devastating? For all intents and purposes, according to the law, you were more than an outcast. You were something like a walking corpse. And this is why the rabbinical literature likened curing a leper to a resurrection bring someone back from the dead. We don't know this man's story. Whatever else it was, it was that. Uh, so you can imagine, as he comes to Jesus and falls in front of him, the emotion. Uh, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You can give me my life back. And the man is emotional, and actually so is Jesus. Uh, he is moved to compassion in seeing this man. Um, I think to get the fullness of the emotions here, he's not only compassionate toward the man, he's angry that this kind of thing afflicts human beings like it should not be. And he stretches out his hand and he touches him and he says, I am willing, and he gives the command and he says, be clean. Uh, Jesus isn't you know, taking up the role of the priest who examines the man to make sure that he's disease-free and now ritually clean. It's more than that. He doesn't just, he's not observing anything about the man. He's ordering cleanness, ordering cleansing upon him. It's its own kind of exorcism. It's rebuke. It's a removal of, of the ravages of the world, the flesh, and the devil that have, that have landed on this man. And when you take it all in, you know, you've got to see that this question of whether Jesus is willing to make him clean is more intense than, you know, seeing if Jesus, you know, if you've got a minute, are you up for a healing right now? 
you can almost hear the trembling and the tears on the man's request because he knows uh, that in approaching Jesus at all, not only is he breaking the law, he is causing Jesus to break the law. He's asking him to do that. Uh, according to ceremonial law, in other words, lepers, it wasn't only that lepers were, weren't allowed to touch non-lepers, non-lepers weren't allowed to touch lepers. And so he's asking Jesus to do this and to take a huge risk to his own reputation, to his own, the perception of his own righteousness, to cleanse him, not only of the disease, to, to not only cure him of the disease, but to cleanse him of the curse. And, and, and let's be clear, the Lord Jesus does it. The sinless Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus who never failed to please the Father, whose food it was to please him, who fulfilled all righteousness, crosses that line, touches that man, heals him, and cleanses him. And the man received not just the healing that comes with a cure, but in fact the deeper healing that comes with cleansing. And this is a picture of Jesus' ministerial priority that prevails, prevails with power. We have to understand Jesus' unique relationship to the law, that he didn't just come to follow it. He came to fulfill it. An illustration of this, okay, um, we all live, at least most of us live under the law. Um, and, you know, most of us mean, most of us know that, what, you know, if you're driving your car, what does red mean? What does red mean? Stop. What does green? Yeah, not in Santa Fe. <laughs> yeah, we used to say stop stands for slightly touch other pedal. I don't know if you ever heard that. But red means stop. What does green mean? Green means go. Um, and yet, there are special situations in which we do exactly the opposite of that. Um, when, when you go on red and you stop on green, and when do you do that? It's when you come to an intersection and there's a policeman standing in the intersection directing traffic. And, and because of that policeman's presence, because of their authority, their direction overrules the whole color of the light thing. And, and I don't know about you, but, you know, even when that happens, I still twinge a little bit. I'm still looking at the lights, and you're telling me to go, but it's red. And do you see that it's red? But their presence in the intersection overrules all. Um, it's the right thing to do because of the authority that is in front of me that is directing. And I think that helps us understand what Jesus is doing here. He is standing at the intersection. Uh, as one who is greater than the law, as one who is the source of it, the author of it, he, not as one who has to serve it, but one who acts in such a way that uh, it works to the service of us. It works to the good of us, works to the glo His glory. He has that authority to do it. And that's His position in relating to this leper. Unlike everyone else, you know, rather than impurity transferring to Jesus, uncleanliness to him, he, with his touch, transfers purity to others. It works the other way. So for the leper, the law was bad news. It was because of the law that he got cast out and kept out and cut off. And, you know, Jesus comes as one greater than the law. And with a word, leprosy leaves him and he's cleansed. 
a word that not only reflect, you know, affects restoration to life as it ought to have been lived, but, but really brings about a resurrection in this man's life, that, that he has gone from the land of the living dead into the land of the living. And Jesus understands he's got to be fully integrated. So he says, go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. But he says something else interesting there. He says, you know, they need to see this as a proof, a proof to them, a testimony to them. Uh, You're healing. He's saying your cleansing is going to tell a story. Not, Not merely that a guy who used to be sick is now well, but that God did the impossible that God brought a man from death to life. And, you know, one of the things I've thought about this week, and I'm grateful for this, we do communion here every week, and it, uh, a great advantage to me is I don't have to come up with clever conclusions to sermons. The conclusion's always here. You know, and, 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 I, and I, I want to direct our attention to this table so that we would see in this sacrament a testimony, that the sacrament would tell us a story as we come, that we would know in this meal that Jesus is, is telling us something week in and week out, that he's testifying to the reality of not merely spiritually feeding on him, but, but our needfulness and our gratitude for the deeper healing, the deeper restoration, the deeper nourishment that comes uh, in knowing Jesus and being restored uh, to a holy God because of him. There was once a group of people that came to Jesus and very proudly said, you know, our ancestors ate manna in the desert. What, you know, what, so what can, what can you possibly offer us better than that? Can you imagine, man, you know, bread from heaven, what an amazing thing. And Jesus, you know, was determined to say, you know, don't cling to that story. See the greater story. Receive the greater story. Yeah, your fathers ate manna from heaven, and guess what? They died but I'm the bread from heaven that gives you life. Feed upon me. So this meal is, tells us that story, and it is the message that would nourish us and keep us from the peril of looking merely for good things in life from Jesus in order that we might gain the greatest thing, which is life in Jesus, from which grow all kinds of good things. This is a meal that assures us that for those who put their faith in Christ, they've been made pure, you've been healed, you've been restored, you've been brought from the land of the living dead into the land of the living, into the kingdom of God. And the table pictures that. It's an anticipation. It is present grace, and it's an appetizer for greater grace to come when we will be with him. The tears will be dried, the full healing affected, when we'll feast on the richest affair with our Savior. Let's pray as we go there. Lord, thank you. Jesus, I'm thankful that, I mean, you are gracious far more than, than we deserve and often giving us what we want. I think you take much delight in that. Um, but I'm also grateful that you don't always give me what I want, but you give me what I need. And so thank you for giving yourself, for not being deterred from your mission, from not holding back even a little bit, but for fully satisfying the demands of the law that would crush us, that would cut us off, that would burden us like that leprous man. Thank you for fulfilling that law and for 
touching us and affecting a cleansing, fullness of life with you. Thank you for taking the, the, the punishment for sin that should have fallen on us forever unto our destruction and instead taking that for us that we might have life. So Lord, you know, when we contemplate these truths, when we apprehend them even a little bit, uh, it, it's, it, takes, it takes our breath away. Thank you for your love for people like us. Thank you that you love your disciples, that you persist with us, that you're here with us in this meal. Uh, Lord, we, don't, we, we wanna come hungry and thirsty um, with nothing in our hands other than you know, a clinging to you. Would you feed us here? Would you unite us here? Would you nourish us here, not just for our own growth, which is important, but that our growth would bring glory to you and that it would bring good to this city that we love so much, uh, this beautiful city of Santa Fe that, like every other place, is broken and needful of, of a Savior. So um, use that to this end, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.